This is Wading Deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race. Racism pollutes our people and land. Resilience, our strength of spirit and hand. Resurrection, our healing, made whole we stand. I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome today's guest, Amin Davis, who is a board member for Partners for Environmental Justice, PEJ. Welcome, Amin. Thanks, Reverend Taylor. I appreciate you uh, having me. I look forward to our conversation. What is environmental racism in your own words? In my own words, um, environmental racism are policies and practices that essentially put communities of color and low wealth communities um, in situations where they're subjected to either dirty water, dirty air, or you know, too much water or not enough water, essentially environmental hazards that uh, the rest of the population are generally not subjected to. I like how you phrase that, um, subjected to, and also in terms of uh, dirty water or not enough water. I know for the past, gosh, I guess five or six years, we think about Flint, Michigan, we think about what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, um, water quality, and these are certainly black and sometimes brown communities. Yeah. And, you know, so that's kind of where you see these patterns when there are these disasters or issues with people not being able to access, um, you know, clean water to drink, to bathe, to just live their lives normally. And uh, more often than not, you'll see that they are in um, black and brown communities um, and or in communities that are just economically disadvantaged in some way. How did you get into environmentalism? Uh, honestly, I, I came out of the womb with a God-given love of his creation, um, especially uh, with water. You know, I've always loved water, particularly streams, rivers, lakes, and swamps. Um, I grew up about 15 minutes from downtown New Haven, Connecticut, and um, I spent a lot of time as a young boy exploring a stream behind my neighbor's house. Um, and I always enjoyed doing that. I even dug a stream channel behind my father's garden and put a pipe in it um, wow. that drained water from my neighbor's yard into the stream um, when it would rain. So after the rain, I would go out and just watch the water flow through the pipe and you know, watch the water flow down um, into the neighbor's yard. So um, I, it's just been a part of part of me. And um, I've always loved just, um, you know, his the creation, natural areas. Um, and uh, it's it's just like I said, it's just just a part of me. I can't um, I can't take credit for it. It's just but I'm grateful for that. I've had opportunities to um to nurture that love that was innately inside of me. And um, even to this day, um, have opportunities to um, uh, to be involved in natural areas. Um, so that's how. 
That's fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a young Amin uh, digging a stream channel <laughs> in the garden. That's, that's, that's magnificent. And you talked about, um, I guess this, this innate, this, this God given love of water. And of course, um, as Christians and, and people of faith, water is extraordinarily important um, in, in religious, uh, particularly in, in a Christian, um, uh, Judaic, and even um, in Muslim tradition. Certainly from a Christian standpoint, we read about Holy Scripture that the Holy Spirit moved or brooded over the waters of creation in the beginning, um, uh, water being the channel for salvation for the people fleeing bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea. And of course, we have Jesus who was baptized in the River Jordan and Christians uh, since have been baptized. So that, that water is an important uh, religious symbol. And I think it's just fascinating that uh, uh, you didn't say this, but you know, actually God was your teacher in this. Um, you didn't mention that your parents were environmentalists um, or had specific training in, in this area. And yet you came into this world with this love of water, particular, particularly streams, lakes, and swamps. I think that's, that's magnificent. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's kind of where my, most of my passion was around those areas, but I also, um, have felt just an innate, um, need to protect the natural resources, both the land and water. I remember they were building a new, um, neighborhood, um, next to my neighborhood. And as a kid, I used to ride, um, it was a field, it was just kind of a, an open field at the time. You know, me and my neighbors, we used to ride our BMX bikes uh, up and down the field and had a, had a great time there. And I remember one day seeing these posts in the ground um, and I didn't know exactly what those posts meant, but I had a feeling that it meant that there was a change coming to that field where we used to ride our bikes through. And I later came out, came to understand that those posts were survey markers and those posts indicated the areas that were going to be built and instead of the fields and the grass and the stream, there would be houses there. Um, so I remember pulling out the stakes from the ground because I just felt that, you know, our area was being uh, encroached upon by something that was going to change it. So, again, that was just a part of me. I didn't I didn't know what was going on, but, you know, um, that's en that's what ended up happening. And now that that uh, subdivision has been there. It's probably an old, considered an older neighborhood now. It's probably 40, 45 years old now. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've just felt a, there's been an innate desire for me to be a steward of God's creation and natural areas that I still, in some ways, maintain to this day. Yeah, and, and what a great uh, story about an activist. Uh, I mean, the activist, the young activist with with the BMX bike pulling up the stakes. I mean, there, there's so much in that story. Um, you know, we think about when developments happen that notices go out to people who are 50 feet away from the property and 50 feet is nothing. Um, you know, what would it have, what would it have looked like with this development, this neighborhood, if the developer had. Um, bridged uh, conversation community with your community. If um, 
you know, you didn't stumble upon this by riding your bike, but, you know, your parents knew that this was happening because the developer had enough courtesy and human sensibility to engage the community, um, to, to talk about uh, maybe some benefits um, to maybe even explore naming so, so many possibilities. But what we find time and time again with development is that developers come in and encroach, domesticate a space um, and it's theirs. And the neighbors, they'll get a notice of 50 feet away, but have no say. And, and I, I love that image of your pulling up the states as, as a sign of, of protest of, hey, this is our play area. This is our space. Um, and we have a say in it. And my power right now is to pull up that stake. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. And I think where I grew up, I don't even know if they had rezonings. Again, this is when I was, you know, in middle school, elementary school, middle school. Um, and, and they may have, and I might not have been aware of it. But regardless, you know, I, I think we weren't aware of what was going on. Um, and, um, you know, like like you said, that when when changes like that come to an area oftentimes the folks that are going to be affected aren't aren't given the common courtesy of um being able to be told what's going to go on or to ha even have a stake in um you know what what will go on uh that may affect um you know their neighborhood you're absolutely right uh, another reason i find your area around water so fascinating is, um, you know, there is there's a narrative, um, you know, that black people can't swim or black people don't like to swim. And, you know, there, there's so many stereotypes around that. Um, and the fact of the matter is that in the United States, it was illegal for black people to be members of country clubs that had swimming pools. So if you were black in America, the way you would learn to swim is if um, you or a family member had enough money to have a pool in the in the backyard um or lived on a coastal area and could go and swim in the ocean and we know that swimming ocean swimming in the ocean is 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 difficult anyway but your 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 love of water um water quality uh preservation helps disrupt that narrative um and i think when when people uh, jokingly talk about black people african americans not being able to swim um, they do it outside of the historical context. You can't swim unless you are near water or you have water to swim. You learn by swimming, by being in water. So if you don't have water, you can't um, learn to swim. So that was a little bit of a sidebar. I just wanted to throw that in and appreciate your work around water quality. Yeah, and, and that's true too that, um, and often particularly in like urban areas as well, it's not common to have um, you know, swimming pools or, or things like that. And just in, you know, our culture, it's not, it's not a common, you know, the, the way I grew up was atypical of, you know, even a lot of my family. So I realized that um, my upbringing may not be typical of the, um, you know, the black experience or, um, or, or whatever, but um, uh, yeah, a lot of things, you know, in our world are based on, um, opportunity and exposure and that you know we'll probably talk about that a little bit later in terms of what i have felt strongly and what i've gotten involved in um later in my life can you talk a little bit about 
Partners for Environmental Justice, PEJ, um, your your role and in, in history with that nonprofit. Yeah, it's it's interesting that my history in North Carolina. I moved to North Carolina in um, 1995 to attend NC State for graduate school. Um, but it's like my life in North Carolina has always kind of directly or indirectly been um, tied to PEJ and to Walnut Creek. The reason why I say that is um, as a graduate student, I was looking for, I didn't have a research project. And um, my professor at the time, uh, one of my professors, uh, a man named Dr. Gary Blank, who I still believe may still be at um the university at NC State University, uh, he got me connected with a professor at Shaw University, Shaw University named uh, Dr. Maxine Highsmith. Um, Dr. Dr. Highsmith was um, made me aware of some of the issues, environmental in, uh, injustice issues going on around Rochester Heights, and she helped me to formulate a research proposal that uh, became the basis of my research project. Um, I ended up doing a biological a biological assessment of the Upper Walnut Creek watershed, which included study sites along um, Walnut Creek behind Centennial Campus and along Garner Road uh, near Rochester Heights. I, as far as my research project, the proposal included some environmental justice elements. The research project didn't because. I was in the zoology um, department at the university, and that was really focused on animals and water, and it really was devoid of the involvement of people per se. So I actually attended a meeting where there were some folks from um, Partners for Environmental Justice in attendance of that meeting. I don't even remember. I just remembered that some of the issues that were going on in Rochester Heights, such as the flooding issues with Walnut Creek, were discussed at that meeting. But beyond that, I didn't really know or understand. I had taken an environmental justice class my senior year at Hampton University. Um, So that was the first time I'd actually even heard of environmental justice. Um, But uh, after graduation from NC State, I um, I, foc- I was focused on trying to get a job to support my life and begin my career as an environmental professional. So I didn't really get reconnected with um, the Rochester Heights issues and with PEJ until 2001. Um, a good friend of mine named Ross Andrews, who was an active board member of PEJ at the time, and he actually ended up becoming the first director of the Walnut Creek Wetland Park. He invited me to be a team leader for the stream cleanups that PEJ had started doing in the late 90s. So um, uh, we would meet uh, in the fellowship hall at St. Ambrose Church, where you um, are the church you're currently shepherding in. Um, The ladies would serve breakfast there, remember bananas and, you know, uh, things like that. We'd eat a little Uh breakfast. Mm-hmm. Ross, and, Ross and Dr. Norman Camp, who um, became the uh, longtime chairperson of PEJ, would fire up the troops, kind of give an overview of what PEJ's mission was in terms of trying to address the flooding issues. And they also had given their vision about there being an urban wetland destination park 
um, right near the Rochester Heights community, which is now the Walnut Creek Wetland Park. So I, from 2001, I helped out with the semi-annual cleanups. Um, and then, but it wasn't until 2016 when I started regularly attending um, PEJ board meetings. Wow, that that's that's a long arc. Um, and I, I didn't realize you were a Hampton grad talking about um, universities on the water, uh, that 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 uh, esteemed institution. So it's, it's fascinating that um, what you started off with biological assessment of the Walnut Creek watershed um, led you to early conversations in 01 uh, with Dr. Norman Camp. And then coming back in, in 2016, attending meetings regularly. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, this vision of an urban wetland destination park uh, at Walnut Creek? Uh, do you think that it's what it is now? Um, does it need to grow into that? Um, perhaps what needs to be done to make it happen if that's not how you would categorize it today? Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, what's going on in the Rochester Heights community and even in Raleigh, Southeast Raleigh, East Raleigh, in terms of how the community is changing. You know, obviously, we both know Rochester Heights is one of the first African-American subdivisions built in the late um, 1950s, um, just south of Walnut Creek in the floodplain. Um, you know, certain um, there's a newspaper article that talks about how one of the first Home buyers was told by the developer that there would be no flooding issues and probably less than a year after that experienced flooding. So that's been a recurring issue almost since, you know, um, the community was was built. And um, it is because of the development pressures, um, the Rochester Heights South Park, just, um, you know, adjacent to Rochester Heights. Um, along MLK is, you know, there was a New York Times article published in uh, a couple of years ago that talked about how the community is changing. It talked about the gentrification. It talked about how, um, you know, historically African-American area is rapidly changing. People are being displaced because of the property values that are being elevated in that area. And I've even I've noticed I actually started taking pictures several years ago as I saw the um, community changing in terms of the houses. There's different houses going up. There are different people moving in these areas. And um, so, you know, it, it's pretty obvious that it, with Rochester Heights, though, those changes aren't as visible as they are in South Park because Rochester Heights is a is on the National Register of Historic Places. That's right. So uh, home buyers can't come in and tear down the houses and make them look different like a lot of the other houses that are being built up in, um, you know, Southeast Raleigh and East Raleigh around uh, St. Augs, all of that. But, um, you know, you can see just by, you know, the, the, the folks that are moving into these areas are, are, are different. Now, I will say that I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to redevelopment. I'm not opposed to other people moving into an area that are different from what's there. I mean, that's part of the story of America, right? But I am, you know, a, a better model of development is one that um, takes in, for instance, Southeast Raleigh, Pro a nonprofit called Southeast Raleigh Promise has a 
development model called revitalization without displacement. So if you look at that center, they intentionally tried to um, improve an area that had been under-resourced historically. Um, and if you, you're familiar with that area, they now have a, a school, Southeast Raleigh Elementary School, um, Southeast Raleigh YMCA. So they serve education. They focus on um, the YMCA is health and wellness. The uh, Beacon Ridge Affordable Housing Complex um, helps um, folks to, um, you know, have a place to live. Um, and uh, that, so that, that model is, is, is something that um, I personally enjoy. And I think it falls under the realm of um, what's called equitable development and equitable development are policies and practices that essentially reverse um, decades of environmental injustices due to, you know, with the environment, with housing, socially, economically. Um, but getting back to your question about the, the park and it being an urban wetland uh, destination that PEJ envisioned back in the late 90s, I think to some degree it does serve as a monument to the environmental justice effort, efforts and advocacy of PEJ and their partners. Um, I do want to make it clear that it wasn't just PEJ. There were other um, faith communities, other Episcopal churches that started off as actually Episcopalians for environmental justice that became uh, what we know as partners for environmental justice back in the late 90s. So the park itself is, is definitely a, um, a monument to those efforts. But um, I also think that when I go there, most of the time, I don't see folks from those, um, you know, uh, Rot Rochester Heights per se. I mean, I don't know. I don't poll the people and say, hey, where are you from? But what I will say to be truthful is that I generally do not see a lot of people of color and African-American folks there the times I'm there. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that it would be, in my mind personally, it would be good to see um, folks that... Um, uh, that that live in Southeast Raleigh that are African American and people of color, um, being able to access that that green space to learn about um, and also to learn about its history. It would be good to see some kind of model or exhibition at the park that documents the history of how it came to be. Um, I know the former park director, or she's actually retiring and uh, maybe in a couple of days, Stacey Hagwood, she's made a concerted effort to really share um, the story of how the park came to be in PEJ's advocacy with visitors, which I applaud her for. Uh, but I think holistically it would be good. Um, you know, we've talked, we've even talked to folks in Rochester Heights who don't even know the story of how the park came to be. Um, so, uh, so I think it's kind of a mixed bag when it talk when we're talking about the park and what whether it's uh, achieving its intended purposes that PAJ had established for it. Thank you so much, Amin. The Wading Deep Podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call the Bros, St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, 
thebrosnc on Twitter and thebros1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jamond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life clear as crystal. Shalom. Salam. Peace.